0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me your host Jonathan Sackier. Today I'm really delighted to have Dr. William Barrett as my guest. He's a fascinating chap for sure but Bill and I have known each other for many many years since he was a surgical trainee and in fact he worked as a research fellow in my department in Washington DC many moons ago. William Barrett, obtained a bachelor's degree in legal studies at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and went to medical school at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, graduating with honors. He did his internship and residency at the George Washington University in the aforementioned District of Columbia, and the research position, which was inserted into his residency. Bill was board certified by the American Board of Surgery with additional qualifications in hyperbaric medicine and wound care. He worked as a clinical instructor at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center College of Medicine, in Minnesota's Mayo system, and at a number of other places as a surgeon. We're not saving lives, Bill has been a keen runner and in fact held the high school state record. He enjoys sport fishing, skiing, scuba diving, astronomy, and cooking. And I remember my time with him. He always had something fascinating to talk about. So let's see if we can cook up an amazing chat. Dr. William Barrett, welcome to the EMJ podcast.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be here. I'm so glad you invited me.
0: Well, it's, it's lovely to stay in touch, Bill, after all these years. So let's start at the very beginning, as they say. How did you get into medicine? And what made you want to be a surgeon?
1: Well, I grew up in New Jersey on the Jersey shore. And I was very interested in fixing things and puzzles as a young boy. Then I grew into enjoying sports. And then in high school, I found my niche in middle distance running. My idols at the time were people, names you may recognize, Sebastian Coe, Steve Ovette, Steve Cram, and I was a recruited middle distance runner going into college.
0: Just for my benefit, just remind us what middle distance is.
1: It centers on the mile in Europe. It's mainly the 1500, goes down to the 800 and then up to the 5,000.
0: Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you.
1: That's fine. I was recruited by Rice University. I went there and ran in the Southwest Conference, Division One, and I became very interested in human performance, how the body works, Originally, I was going to be a science major focusing in physics, but we trained in the shadow of a place you've been not too long ago, the Texas Medical Center. So I was always looking over there and saying, hmm, what is that very interesting place with all these huge buildings? Turns out some of my pre-med friends told me about a summer program working with some of the famous heart surgeons there. I decided to apply to that because I thought medicine sounded like a hands-on way of working in science. I was accepted and I worked for a full summer in the operating rooms of Dr. Denton Cooley, who was the person who installed the first artificial heart in Houston back in the late 60s. It was an amazing experience and I decided I loved being in the operating room and I decided to go to medical school. I went to UNC Chapel Hill, then on to George Washington University for my residency, and that's where I met you.
0: So different places, and for those not familiar with the United States, culturally very different. Texas, uh, the Carolinas, Washington, D.C., very, very different places, different vibes. And you've lived a very, very rich professional life, Bill, working in lots of places. Did that play a role in choosing where to go other than being enamored by the the mile or so, or the center of Houston, where the medical center is, what drove the decisions as to where you went?
1: My parents moved to North Carolina. So I was in state for going to UNC Chapel Hill, and it was the best financial deal in medical education at the time. So that's what brought me to UNC Chapel Hill. Then deciding to go to Washington, D.C., it was still driving distance from North Carolina where my parents were. And it had a very good reputation as being a very collegial training program that was very cutting edge when it came to surgical science. And you were a big part of that, bringing laparoscopic surgery there.
0: Well, I'm swiftly going to move away from me. This is all about you,
1: my friend. (laughs) But,
0: you know, I'd like to talk a little bit of the time you were with me, Bill. I You know, I've talked about my rules for life and rule number one is it's about being surrounded by people who, frankly, you like and who can, you know, teaching should be a two way street and it should be fun. And it certainly was when you were around, Bill, and you were very good at surgical research. And I thought it was going to be a big part of your life. You were curious. You were very engaged. You asked very good questions. You also wrote very well. You presented very well. You came up with good ideas, but you didn't pursue it. Did you lose interest in doing conventional research as part of your professional life? What was the inflection point? Or well, maybe it was me. <laughs> maybe I wrote <laughs> it out of you. Oh, God. I hadn't thought of that.
1: Not at all. If I was going to go into academic medicine, I knew research would have to be a big part of what I did. And that's why I took that year to do research. So I was very interested in that. I also back in medical school had gone to Croatia in one of my fourth year rotations and did my trauma surgery residency in the city of Rijeka in Croatia, which at the time was medically involved with the siege of Mostar, which was an act of war that was going on at the time. I was very interested in the hands-on part of surgery, and by doing that international trip, I guess you could say I caught the bug for adventure. And following my residency, instead of going right into fellowship, there was a professor, Dr. Glenn Gilhood, who invited me to go with him over to India and work in the foothills of the Himalayas in a place called Manali. So. I graduated from residency, went to India, spent three months there, had an amazing experience. And when I came back, I decided I was more interested in bringing surgery to the population and to the people who didn't have access than in pursuing research. So I think that's where my change of course went.
0: Okay. Well, and that makes perfect sense. And I want to come back to the work you've done overseas, which is really inspiring. And it's it's funny how often in these conversations, people talk about the impact of access. And access to medical care can be due to so many reasons. It can be because there aren't doctors, there aren't hospitals, there aren't roads, there isn't money, there isn't education, many, many reasons. But you came back, And one of the things that you did in in your professional career, you've worked at a number of Native American healthcare facilities in Arizona, Oklahoma, and so on. I think you've explained why you did it. What was the most interesting and enriching part of those experiences? And tell us about things you saw and did.
1: So my first job after I came back from India was working with the Indian Health Service. And it seemed like a place where I could do kind of that outreach type medicine, but in the United States. So first I worked with the Choctaws, and then I went out and worked with the Navajos in a place called Chinle, Arizona, near Canyon de Shea. And it was just a great experience. There were two other surgeons who had just graduated, so who were just like me, fresh out of residency. And then we would always have a surgeon at the end of his career, rotating through. So these guys had been in practice for 30 years and we just spent that time scrubbing in with these guys. In a way it was like doing a fellowship. There was tremendous biliary disease there. So we were doing all kinds of complex laparoscopic biliary procedures. We also got a chance to do things like hand surgery, which we hadn't done in residency. And every month we had a hand day. so. There was a professor from the University of Colorado who would fly in on a private airplane and we would line up about five to 10 hand cases and he would just take us through all these interesting, interesting hand cases. We also had to practice without a CAT scanner. So that was a diagnostic challenge, which I enjoyed. And I have to say the level of disease out on these Native American reservations is very acute. And it was challenging. It was fun. There was a lot of laparoscopy involved. We were doing a lot of laparoscopic common bile duct explorations. There weren't any GI docs, so we had to do all that. So it was really a a wonderful experience.
0: I recall that certainly the Pima Indians, is it the Pima in Arizona have an extremely high incidence of gallstones?
1: They do. And the Hopis and the Pimas are contained within the Navajo Reservation, and we would actually do clinics on those reservations inside the Navajo Reservation. So I guess you could say we were right there at ground zero of gallbladder disease. Why is it that they all get gallstones, remind me? Ah, That's a good question, because I've thought about that for a long time, and I don't think anybody's really come up with the answer. And I would say that you have a group of people who were eating a very paleo type diet. And then the American government comes in and completely destroys their culture and then decides they have to provide them with food. And they bring in the most processed horrendous food from a health standpoint. And this entire population ends up developing type two diabetes, gallbladder disease, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it has to do with a population that is so genetically predisposed to eating, let's say wild game and vegetables that are naturally grown in their own backyard and then switching them and then taking all of that away from them and switching to what people call commodity foods, commodity cheese, processed grains. So giving them tons of calories, destroying their metabolism, which we'll talk about later. And as a result, you've got unbelievably high rates of obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and biliary disease.
0: Yeah, interesting. I'm reminded of the oft-told parable of the medical student being examined for their final exam. And the professor asks about Crohn's disease, which of course, No one really knows what causes it at the time. And he says, young lady, what causes Crohn's disease? And she goes, Crohn's disease. Yes, yes. Regional ileitis, Crohn's disease. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I was reading about it just the other night. And um, I'm sorry, Professor, it slipped my mind. And the professor turns to his his colleague and says, amazing, the only person in the world who knew and she's forgotten. (laughs) That's pretty good. So Bill, as everyone knows, here in Britain, Queen Elizabeth died recently and an oft-heard observation was that she dedicated her life to service. I think the same could be said of you. You and I worked on an Operation Smile initiative together back in the day, but you've gone far beyond that. And you you mentioned that, you touched on that, India and how that influenced you. And you, you served on mercy ships in Liberia, Benin, Madagascar, Guinea, community outreach clinics, in the United States, which we've talked a bit about, Nicaragua, you talked about India, the Himalayan medical missions, and on and on and on. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this. And someone else that I talked to about doing medical missionary work stated, it's not what I give to them, it's what they give to me. Give me your experiences.
1: Jonathan, that's absolutely true. And I guess if you haven't done it, it's hard to completely understand. But once you go, you think that you're gonna find yourself in these depressed, poverty-stricken areas. And yes, there's poverty, but I don't feel the depression. I actually feel the life. And even though these people have to struggle, they're very alive. They're not sad. It's a very happy and very active all these places, very happy, very active. So I've enjoyed going there. I enjoy the type of people who like to go there. I love working with them. I love seeing other cultures. And like I said before, having these adventures. I did that a few times. And then I finally found Mercy Ships and Mercy Ships is a great story. It was basically somebody who understood that medical care can be delivered on a ship. And the history goes way back to the Romans. It goes back to the British Navy. And then it goes to the history of New York and Boston where they had big clinics for poor children on these boats. And those boats operated for many, many decades. So, Mercy Ships brought that model to surgery, and they did a lot of the craniofacial stuff that we worked with Operation Smile, and in fact, the McGee's, you probably remember them.
0: Yes, of course.
1: They are also involved with Mercy Ships. And somehow Mercy Ships got into general surgery because when screening for all of these craniofacial cases, they had to turn away all these people with hernias and other General surgery problem. So they said, hmm, maybe we need to open up a general surgery operating room. And they did. And even though it's not the premier operating room on the ship, when the camera crews come in from National Geographic or the Discovery Channel, they are not interested in the general surgery room. They're interested in the absolutely amazing stuff going on in the craniofacial room. But I just loved. Being on the boat, I loved doing cases every single day. I loved everything about it. And that's where my passion for Mercy Ships comes in.
0: Wonderful. I haven't done anywhere near as much as you, but I reflect on that. Operating in some you know, so-called lesser developed countries had me questioning the things that we hold important with a focus on, I don't know, commercialism and if you will, narcissism. And these countries where there's far more of a focus on humanity. But let's switch tack a little bit. You've taught me a lot about nutrition. We've talked about nutrition and a debate centering on carbohydrates. You've already mentioned processed foods and how it negatively impacts metabolism, specifically insulin resistance. There's a growing trend towards regarding insulin resistance as perhaps the primary driver in metabolic syndrome, obesity, and even cancer and arterial disease. I'd like you to help us navigate that dialogue, Bill.
1: Yes, well, growing up, we were always told that fat was the villain, right? That's right. That was the party line in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s and up until now. And we didn't even learn in medical school much about insulin resistance. We kind of heard about it, but quite frankly, we didn't have much of a background in this. So I find myself in my late 40s, like a lot of middle-aged American men who have a busy career, starting to put on weight, starting to see that hemoglobin A1C go up, maybe a little bit of hypertension. And I think I was developing sleep apnea. So a lot of very typical things with middle-aged American men. At the same time I was on a ski trip with one of my childhood friends who's not in medicine. And he mentioned something to me called bulletproof coffee. And I'm like, I've never heard of such a thing. What, what is this? And he said, yeah, I've had it. Yeah. So he's like, you put butter in your coffee and you don't eat anything else and you lose body fat. And I'm like, this is, this, this is crazy. You know, I, 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 I don't understand this. And turns out this bulletproof coffee, I would say, is kind of an important moment in science because it starts an era of, in, in fact, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary now has the word biohacking in it, and they attribute it to a guy named Dave Asprey, who was the one who came up with bulletproof coffee. and he discovered it it goes back to ancient culture he discovered it when he was doing some sort of pilgrimage to mount kailash in northern india and they were putting yak butter in tea and they were using that as fuel at high altitudes to travel long distances and he used it to lose a large amount of weight and the biohacking part of it is that it puts you into a state of ketosis. So it has medium change triglycerides, which were used by the bodybuilders to lose body fat. And then you combine it with the caffeine and the stimulant of coffee or tea. And it turns out it can put you right into fat burning mode or ketosis. Absolutely fascinating. So I'm like, wow, this is I've never heard about any of this stuff in medical school. I've done general surgery. We deal with nutrition all the time. In fact, if there's any specialist, like Jonathan, is is there any specialist in medicine who deals with nutrition more than the general surgeon? Good point. When it comes to working in the ICU, we're giving people TPN. We have to decide exactly what proportion of macronutrients To give, what micronutrients to give, we're operating on the gut and the intestines. So, you know, why don't we know more about this? So it sent me down a road of researching, listening to podcasts, fitness. And I started to learn more about the metabolic syndrome because it looked like I was developing the metabolic syndrome. So just as a reminder for everybody, there's five criteria for the metabolic syndrome: abdominal obesity, hypertension impaired fasting glucose, elevated triglycerides, and low HDL. And metabolism is energy production. And the medical world recognized that this was very important back in the early 1900s. There was a lot of research going on in metabolism. That's when they figured out the Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle. And somebody will talk about it in a little bit, Otto Warburg. So it looks like this Metabolic system in our bodies is somehow getting messed up. What's causing it? There's no answers. If you go to up to date, which is what Americans used for the latest in how to actually practice medicine and what the top recommendations are, they have metabolic syndrome, they have prediabetes, but they don't really explain exactly what's going on. Just over the last couple of years, they have. So they've Recognize the importance of this other type of research that's going on, which we'll again talk about more when it comes to social media. But I would say, if you were to ask most physicians five years ago what is driving metabolic syndrome, it would be fat. And saturated fat leads to insulin resistance. And that was it. Hmm. And I think that that stance, or let's say that established truth within medicine is being seriously challenged right now. And what people are discovering is that it's probably more based on insulin resistance. Now, what's causing insulin resistance? This isn't exactly clear. But if you look back at metabolic syndrome, look at the last three things, impaired fasting glucose elevated triglycerides, low HDL, we know that decreasing your carbohydrate intake will take care of those things. So if you have an impaired fasting glucose, you generally go low carb, you avoid sugar. Fasting is also found to be effective. Elevated triglycerides are a telltale sign of metabolic syndrome. And if you look at it up to date now, They specifically acknowledge that a very low-carb diet can address elevated triglycerides. Low HDL, that again, is an indicator of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and who are the people out there who are able to elevate their HDL non-pharmacologically? It's the people who are actually eating more meat. And not only has fat been vilified in the medical community, but you hear all the time about how meat is bad for you. Red meat, meat with high saturated fat, yet it will elevate your HDL. And some people now are even talking about the HDL to triglyceride ratio as being a very good indicator for heart disease. That is as opposed to focusing on LDL. And when I bring up LDL, that's another highly controversial topic. So what do we do? We have this conflict. If you want to address metabolic syndrome, you want to address insulin resistance, on one hand, you're being told, decrease saturated fat, go very low fat, go vegan, go vegetarian. Those diets are focused on carbohydrates. Yet, there's this other established information that says if you want to specifically address things like impaired fasting glucose, elevated triglycerides, and low HDL, you're going to be going in exactly the other direction towards low-carbohydrate diets. So what do we do? How do we resolve this conflict? And I would say right now, it is a subject that's being actively debated on many, many, many levels. And the place where you see it probably the most is on social media. Interesting.
0: Not only fascinating, but very eloquently stated, Bill. Expand and talk a little bit about ketosis and the health benefit.
1: So let's go back to our training. Our knowledge of ketosis in medical school comes from knowing about and learning about diabetic ketoacidosis. So everything we knew about ketosis was bad. This is a patient who comes into the emergency room. Their blood sugar is absolutely through the roof. They are acidotic. And what do you do for these people? You give them insulin and then you manage their electrolytes. So at first glance, this is a problem with glucose management, and extreme insulin resistance. That's what's been focused on. But you have this other component, which is the ketosis part. So you have a body that is trying to make energy by getting glucose into their cells, and it's cranking out huge amounts of ketone bodies, which is the other part of our metabolism. So we have one part of our metabolism that's burning glucose. We have the other part of our metabolism that's burning fat. Through ketones. And the ketones cause the acidosis. So this is obviously a bad thing. But my understanding of it now is that it is your body not able to use those ketones. So your body is producing these ketones, but they just can't use them. And why is that? Because your metabolism is so messed up that it's unable to utilize the ketones and they build up in the bloodstream. And that the way I kind of summarize it is your body has forgotten how to burn fat. your body has forgotten how to use ketones. So for most doctors up until a few years ago, ketoacidosis is bad. So ketosis is a bad thing, right? Completely not the case. Ketosis turns out is really, really good. So why does the body know how to do ketosis? It's a survival mechanism. When we, were, let's say, living on the the plains and we were starving, and we would go in general forty eight hours without food, when we ran out of our glycogen stores in our liver and in our muscles, then we would switch over to burning fat, and we would go into ketosis. Now, turns out your your whole body changes when it's in ketosis. You start thinking more clearly, and think about a human who's starving he needs to survive. And what does he need to do to survive? He needs to find food. So you're thinking more clearly. You're able to problem solve more clearly. You actually have more mental clarity and focus. And then turns out our body is able to travel long distances in ketosis. So we were probably persistence hunters when we were, our ancient ancestors were persistence hunters so they were traveling long long distance in ketosis burning ketones this was a very good thing because when you're in ketosis and you're traveling it's a more efficient way of producing energy so the you remember from working in the intensive care unit when you would do a metabolic cart study to see how much glucose and fat burning the key with when you're burning fat it has a respiratory quotient of 0.7. So you're producing 30% less carbon dioxide for each unit of energy produced. And that's why persistence hunters, that's why now you see endurance athletes who are using exogenous ketones as a energy source or long distance runners who are putting themselves purposefully into ketosis to perform better. So this was actually an amazing thing. And you know we didn't know much about it, but as I started to look into all this, I started to learn all these amazing things about ketosis. So now we know that there are many diseases that improve in ketosis. So you go back to the history of treating epilepsy at the Mayo Clinic in the 30s and the 40s, they were treating epileptic patients with a ketotic diet. Their epilepsy would be cured basically or at least during the time that they were in ketosis. So seizure disorders improve when in ketosis. There's what we talked about, weight loss, type 2 diabetes. Cognitive decline is actually, you have less cognitive decline, mainly due to brain-derived BNDP, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Multiple sclerosis improves when in ketosis. Autophagy, which is something we'll talk about when it comes to longevity or basically clearing out senescent cells, it's now being used as an adjunct in cancer treatment. People will go into ketosis during radiation treatment and chemotherapy treatments and finding that they're more effective. Many of the cancer centers are now using this modality. Glycogen storage disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, Parkinson's disease, fatty liver, migraines, even traumatic brain injuries. So it turns out ketosis is a really, really good thing. And when you really delve into this, you start to realize that even ancient cultures knew about this. Why was fasting incorporated into different cultures and religions? Was it doing it as a sacrifice to your God? Or were there actually health benefits that these people knew about? and they used religion and culture and tradition to get people to start doing this for their own better health.
0: That's fascinating. So you've referenced fats. Why did fat get vilified? So the whole healthy, unhealthy fat thing, nonsense, is it? I mean, it's been controversial, Bill,
1: have at it. Let's talk about the recent history of fat. Go back to at least in the United States, 1955, the Eisenhower heart attack. So, heart disease became, for some reason, it was increasing starting in the 50s, and then you have the presidential heart attack, and now everybody's thinking about this: why? Why are all these middle-aged men, and why is heart disease getting worse and worse? So. They began to do studies. They started looking at coronary arteries. Obviously they found cholesterol in plaques. That led to a wave of research looking at population studies and it was really Ansel Keys in, I think he was up in Minnesota, and he basically stated that it was cholesterol and it was dietary cholesterol and it was dietary saturated fat and That was extrapolated in the general consciousness of the population that fats are bad. So this caused a a change in the food industry. And if fats are bad, somehow we have to now create heart-healthy fats. So the best story on all of this is butter full of saturated fat must be bad. So we're going to come up with new butter. And there was tons of corn oil out there. And they found out you can turn it into a trans fat, so you can hydrogenate it, and it turns it from a liquid at room temperature into a solid at room temperature. And you can put coloring in it, and it kind of looks like butter. So this began this huge wave of replacing all of our animal fats, most of our dietary fats, certainly anything that had cholesterol and saturated fat in it, and started replacing those with plant oils, seed oils, and turning many of them into trans fats. Now, we know for a fact that that was a big mistake. So, this whole idea that margarine is healthy, that margarine is his heart healthy, that has been completely debunked. But there's still debate when it comes to polyunsaturated fats and vegetable derived fats. So, let's go back a little bit. Let's talk about the three different kinds of fats. So, first, you have saturated fats, which are basically fats that are solid at room temperature. Up until now, those have been vilified. You have monounsaturated fats, and pretty much everybody agrees that those are okay. Those are healthy fats. And we'll talk about what food products have a lot of monounsaturated fats. But then you have polyunsaturated fats. So those are the ones derived from vegetables in general, corn oil, safflower oil, soybean oil, all of these plant and seed derived oils. And those can be divided into two groups. So you have the omega-3s, which pretty much everybody agrees are good. And those include EHA, EPA, and DHA. And there's been a lot of cardiac studies done finding that those are generally good. But then you have the other category, which are the omega-6, polyunsaturated fats, mainly linoleic acid. And all of your vegetable oils are very high in omega-6 linoleic acid. And it looks like those are and can be inflammatory. So you've heard about the whole idea of inflammation as one of the underlying causes of disease. And people are certainly looking at sugar, but they're also looking at these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats. And there's conflicting studies. So they've done studies where they've replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fats. In general, cholesterol went down, heart disease went down, but lifespan also went down. So it turns out that people who are eating more saturated fats live longer. While those who were eating more polyunsaturated fats did have lower cholesterol, maybe had less heart disease, although that's controversial, and that's the debate that's raging right now. The
0: the problem is that the end points, very prosaic, term, are you know is basically lifespan and health span. So by nature, the the research takes a long time to prove out. But utilizing first principles is a good start, right?
1: I agree. And for the listeners, just to finish up on fats, what are the generally agreed upon fats that are healthy? So I would say fish, I would say olive oil, I would say ghee, I would say avocado oil. And then the controversial oils are coconut oil. It is a plant-derived oil, but it is high in saturated fats canola oil, which comes from a very industrialized process and comes from a food source that is inedible, even to livestock. It's actually poisonous to cows, but is high in monounsaturated fat. And then you have the controversial saturated fats.
0: Well, that's very cool and news you can use. So let's move on, Bill. Death and taxes, the only certainties, but you're involved in the longevity, longevity movement and you wax lyrical on all aspects, and we've talked a great deal about it, nutrition, metabolism, exercise, supplements. How scientifically valid is the field? And we could probably talk for hours, but unfortunately, we don't have hours to talk about it. We can always do a subsequent podcast. Lots of noise, lots of supplements, lots of glossy advertisement, advertisements claiming to deliver the elixir of life next to a photograph of some buff geezer who claims to be 75 years old. Give us an overview, Bill.
1: Yeah, so again, it's a great way to give the overview is to give a brief history of the modern era of longevity. So we remember back in the 60s with Linus Pauling, there was the whole antioxidant rage and the free radical theory of aging that led to the calorie restriction era that was in the 70s through the 90s. And that culminated in something called, people may have heard of the Biosphere 2, where people went into this completely enclosed environment in Arizona and basically starved themselves to see what would happen to their bodies and to see if it would cause them to live longer. And unfortunately that experiment basically ended in a lot of controversy and a lot of, a lot of disaster. There's still the people in the calorie restriction camp on longevity, and I don't think that there's any debate that in some way calorie restricting is beneficial, can increase lifespan, but people aren't focusing on that as much anymore. Now we have what I would call this new era of human longevity, and you know about it through, it, it's mul- it, there's multiple components to it. So you've heard about stem cells, that I would say is a small part of it. You have a whole new group of startup companies in Silicon Valley. So these are looking at a lot of supplements that we might talk about in a little bit. You have a whole new group of ultra wealthy people who have more money than they know what to do with and are putting that money towards seeing if they can utilize some of these new technologies to live longer. And that's leading to people starting to do some pretty extreme things. You have increased research in the established medical field through something called the ITP, which are the Interventions Testing Program. And recently, you may have seen in the news that the combination of rapamycin and acarbose was found to very consistently increase lifespan in mice by around 30%. There have been multiple other ITP trials that have looked at things like metformin, people are focusing quite a bit on rapamice and spermidine now. You've got a lot of research going into things called senolytics, which we touched on briefly earlier, but there's a guy named David Sinclair at the Harvard Longevity Institute, who's putting a lot of research into senolytics, which are micronutrients that can faster create autophagy. In our bodies and get rid of senescent cells quercetin and phycetin are the ones that people are using now you've got a lot of new interest in fasting and some of the things that we've been talking about when it comes to diet and people are really first of all they're experimenting with things like intermittent fasting which is having longer non-eating windows, shorter eating windows during your day. So for instance, not eating breakfast and maybe even delaying your lunch. And then you have a group of people who are looking back at ancient cultures, looking back at ancient practices, looking back at people who were doing not just one day fast, but three day fast and even longer fasts and how that might impact longevity. And I think one of the other factors that has very much come into play in this new era of longevity is social media. So when we talked about Dave Asprey and this whole new thing called biohacking, he talked about this on, he had one of the earliest podcasts and people were listening in on what he was saying and what he was talking about and not just the general population, but scientists and doctors were also listening to what he was saying, and they were very intrigued. Now there's a new era of podcasts. One in particular is The Drive by a doctor named Peter Atia, and there's a little bit of a connection with us because he was also trained as a general surgeon. He was up at Johns Hopkins. He went and did his fellowship at the NIH, He ended up leaving general surgery and getting more interested in lipidology. And when it comes to how to manage LDL cholesterol, his podcast is absolutely amazing. It's almost inaccessible to the general public. So it's aimed mainly at physicians because I think it's mostly physicians who can understand what he's talking about. Like we talked about before, David Sinclair, he's out there now in the media. He has something called the Longevity Podcast, which just finished up about a month ago. He's thinking about having another one. There's a European scientist from Italy, Walter Longo, who's now at the Longevity Institute at University of Southern California. And he's working a lot on fasting mimicking diets. So is there a way to get the benefits of fasting without doing a full fast? And he has come up with a product called Prolon, And it allows you to eat small amounts of food during the day in a very measured way and still get the benefits of fasting. So
0: Bill, you've mentioned social media and today all you need for something like a podcast and here are we doing one, all you need is a microphone, a computer, a decent network connection and an opinion. Controversies or controversies is not necessarily a bad thing. Disagreeing is not necessarily bad. Being disagreeable is, and as doctors, we've got a responsibility to present balanced observations based on data. My attitude is it's always the best data at the time. It may not be perfect data, but it's the best at the time. How do we balance? I've got a sneaking suspicion about A, B, or C, and that, you know, profound, almost religious obligation to deliver fact based data. What does Dr. Barrett think?
1: Well, I think social media has been helpful. And let me, let, let me explain how it may be changing the way that people are learning and changing the way that different fields of science are interacting. So in our traditional model of science and of healthcare, everything tends to be very siloed. The general surgeons aren't talking that much with the lipidologists. And social media has been a way for those people to really interact. And it has led to what I think is a lot more collaboration. At the same time, the people that you've talked about, perhaps that are creating quite a bit of controversy and this whole idea of misinformation, are maybe the the biohackers or what people are now calling the citizen scientists. So, do those people even, should they even be in the conversation? Well, I would say the citizen scientists have contributed and they have perhaps awakened us to the idea that established dogma may not be exactly correct. It may need to be challenged. It may need to be re-looked at, and that would be for the experts to do. So I don't think social media is all bad. I think it also leads to an acceleration of knowledge An acceleration of figuring things out. So all these things are good. I would have to say too, that there's a tremendous amount of learning that somebody can do now through social media. So you have all these podcasts that I've mentioned, and you can have an interest in a subject, and now you don't have to go to the experts to wherever they are and take classes from them. You can just get on social media and you can get on this if you want to call it a bandwagon you can call it a bandwagon but you're going to be you're going to be able to learn a large amount of information very quickly and then you're also going to be able to track things in a very up to date day by day way when new papers come out you're going to get alerted hey this paper just came out hey this itp trial is going to be released tomorrow everybody's going to be looking at it and Im- immediately gets commented upon so I think social media has been very good.
0: The only comment I would make, Bill, I mean, I accept that giving people the opportunity to speak, not just based on from, you know, the ivory towers, but if they've got an opinion, as long as it's delivered in a responsible manner, sources are cited, because, you know, telling people that magic moonbeams are going to cure your cancer, you have a profound obligation if you t- give people errant information. I'm not suggesting anything you said is errant. Uh, I, I find you a fascinating bloke, which is why Bill, my final question. If Bill Barrett had three wishes to improve global health, especially given the fact that you're one of the few guys who's really seen health from a global perspective, what would they be?
1: Yeah, I would say when it comes to global health and when it comes to access to healthcare, there's a lot of challenges out there. So for instance, if somebody wants to go to another country, there's a lot of licensing issues. And if we could somehow decrease those barriers and allow physicians to go to other places, let's say American physicians who have an interest to go to other places and somehow be able to fit in with the existing healthcare system, without going through all of the licensing procedures. And I will say, knowing from personal experience that these things often get highly politicized. So when I was over in Ethiopia, it was very difficult for an American physician to get licensed mainly because the existing government was anti-American and they just had no interest in doing that even though there was a significant need. So. It would be good if we could decrease political barriers to doctors, going to places where one area where there's too many doctors, and then bring those doctors to someplace where there are not enough doctors. I would also say there's there's a lot of interest in volunteering. You hear about medical students all the time, hearing them say, I want to get involved in medical international medicine. I want to go outside the United States to do a rotation or practice, but you don't see a lot of ways for that to happen. So I think it would be great if you could tap into this desire to volunteer and somehow connect it to vehicles that they can actually do the volunteering. Some of my other wishes, I I do want us to figure out this, and I think it's really, really important, this whole idea about metabolic syndrome And is insulin resistance driving this? Is it carbs that are driving it? Some people are saying it's fructose. Is it really saturated fat, which we've been told all along? I think we need to figure that out. Controversy is good. The debate is good. We've got to get somewhere. We've got to make progress. And then when we do figure those things out, what are we going to do with this information? Are we going to get involved with industry? Are we going to get involved with the FDA? Are they going to be willing to make changes? And I would say if there's a, a third wish, it has to do with the mindset of the system. I would say looking at healthcare from a bird's eye view, yes, we've done very well when it comes to technology, when it comes to pharmacology, when it comes to developing a healthcare system that can tackle disease. I think we've done an absolutely amazing job. When it comes to the health of a population, however, I think that's where we have fallen short. And the question is, who is going to tackle that problem? Is it the doctor's responsibility? I would say if the general population is looking towards somebody, they're looking towards the doctors. And the ball is now in our court to figure this out and to do something about it. And uh, yeah, those are my three wishes.
0: Well, I would think if the public are looking for doctors to sort it out, my guess is that Dr. William Barrett will be at the forefront of those doing that. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us today. And frankly, you may not have been involved in academic research, but your brain has never stopped working and may it never stop. And thank you for for your inquiring mind and for everything you're doing for patients.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure being on the podcast and I really hope the listeners got something out of this.
0: And, you know, we can always have you back when you've got more things to talk to us about. And don't be a stranger. Hopefully we can get together in the not too distant future. So, folks, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I certainly did. And I hope that you'll subscribe for our weekly shows. Please tell your friends like us on social media, all the things they say at the end of a podcast. But until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, This is your host, Jonathan Sagia, asking you to please stay safe, stay well, stay curious.
1: Bye for now.